listen to this portion of God's word. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straight up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older one first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and live your life of sin. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing at your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. The word of the Lord. So I am so blessed and excited to welcome a, a friend today, a, a, not only a friend, but someone that I have admired and maybe even idolized at times. Uh, this is Ron Walborn. Ron is the dean of Nyack College and Alliance Theological Seminary. He's also uh, the vice president there, and uh, he's here with his wife, wife Wanda, and 20 years ago, when I was one of the resident directors at uh, Nyack College, they came to New York and, and uh, were such an incredible blessing to me then and, and to the Nyack campus. Uh, Ron has written a book. He has written many periodicals. He's written articles. He um, is an incredible uh, friend and speaker. And uh, he has four children, three grandchildren, Nine cats. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, he, he is uh, going to speak with you today on grace-based parenting, which is fitting for Mother's Day. So I'm glad that you're here, if you're, especially if you're a parent. And uh, I would just like for you to give him a warm welcome. And you're in for a treat. Ron. Good morning, Trinity Baptist. Good to be with you. Uh, this is my first time in your church, and it is beautiful. Uh, what, a, what a wonderful place to worship, uh, and uh, Wanda and I are excited to be with you. Uh, yesterday was graduation day at Nyack and Alliance Theological Seminary. This was graduation week, and so I have posed for more pictures at any time during the year than uh, you know, any other time. And uh, it, was, it was a great day. Uh, some of you may know that uh, at uh, Nyack College, we have, for about 20 years, had two campuses. We've had a campus uh, up in Rockland County, where we've been for about 120 years, and then down in New York City in Battery Park. And this coming year, we are uh, going 
to be moving down to New York City completely. We're selling our campus in Rockland County. Wanda and I are getting ready to move into uh, New York. And uh, we're really excited about going all in in New York City because we're excited about what God's doing in New York City. Um, that's kind of a premature picture. But uh, go ahead and back up a little bit, if you would. Thank you. Uh, I, I want to talk to you today about fighting the right battles. Um, and let me, let me premise it this way. I mean, uh, we're going to talk about John 8. I guarantee you've never heard a Mother's Day sermon on a woman caught in adultery. Um, <laughs> but I promise you, hang in there. It'll make sense in just a minute, all right? Uh, the poor children's pastor said, how am I going to do the children's... Uh, I'm not sure what she figured out, James, but, um, but it, let me go back this way. Uh, Juan and I have been married 35 years this summer, and uh, in those 35 years, I've had to learn to choose my battles wisely, because it's not possible to be married without having a few battles, and, um, and, and one of the things I've had to learn is that if I choose to fight the wrong fight, the wrong battle, uh, even if I win, I lose badly. In fact, I, I said that one time in a church, and a guy went, amen, and all of a sudden he went, ouch, as his wife elbowed him, and I realized he just lost the battle. Um, and, and so I, I really had to struggle with how do you learn to choose to fight the right battle? And, um, and then go ahead and go to the next picture. Uh, you see my kids here. Uh, those are our four uh, children, all now adults. They were all four teenagers at the same time. And, uh, and I had to really learn how to fight the right battles when my kids became teenagers. Now, a little bit of parenting advice here. What makes you a great parent at one stage of your child's life will make you a terrible parent at the next. Because you have to use extrinsic motivation in those early years. You do have to train up a child in the way that they should go. And, and you do have to focus on their behavior. But there comes a point, usually in the teen years, where if you don't shift to intrinsic motivation, to winning the battle for their heart instead of winning the battle for behavior, that's when you get into trouble. Because you have to begin to not focus on behavior and focus on how do I win the pathway to their heart. Now here's where we make the transition. I think the church has been guilty for a long time of fighting the wrong battles. I, I think there are times that we as a church and we as parents spend our time, our energy, and our money on fighting battles and God's up in heaven going, why in the world are you wasting your time on that battle? That is not the battle I've called you to fight and even if you win it, you're going to lose. So today, I, I want to kind of weave two themes in on this. I think there are people in our lives whose hearts need to be won. And I think sometimes we get focused on their behavior and the outward and the external and we lose the battle for their hearts. I also think this is something we've got to learn with our kids. And whether you have children or not, I, I think there are lessons here that we're going to look at today in John chapter 8 that will help us to become people that know how to fight the right battle, that know how to go after the heart and not just the external, not just the extrinsic, not just behavior. So take a look with me at this passage. I won't read it again to you. We've already read it. But let me highlight a few things uh, about this passage. And, and so Jesus is here, and he is appearing in the temple courts, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they bring in this woman who is caught in the act of adultery, is what the text tells us. Now, 
I have a question. If this woman was caught in the act of adultery, where's the man? Because the truth is, they start to quote the law of Moses, but the law of Moses required that both parties be brought. But you have to understand, when people are always fighting the wrong battle, when they're focused on the external, they tend to apply the law selectively. And often it's the disenfranchised that get hit with it more. But in addition to them picking on just the woman, leaving out the man, they are trying to set Jesus up. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to lure him into the wrong battle. And Jesus resists this. Now, if you notice in this passage, when they ask him, uh, what are we going to do? The law of Moses says we should stone this woman. What do you say? Jesus does not take the bait. He pauses. He waits. And he bends down and starts to write on the ground with his finger. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed that before, but uh, over the last 2,000 years, scholars have conjectured as to what was Jesus writing in the dirt. What was he doing? And some have suggested maybe he was writing out the Ten Commandments. Uh, There's one commentator that says, no, 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 he was writing out the secret sins of the accusers. Now imagine that, you're standing there with a stone in your hand, ready to throw a stone at this woman, and all of a sudden your dirt begins to appear in the dirt. That's enough to make me drop my stone and leave, okay? But the truth is, we don't know what Jesus was writing. But I think what he was doing is this. He was waiting, and he was listening, and he was refusing to get drawn into the wrong battle. And, and I think he was double listening. I think he is listening and discerning what's going on here. He's listening to his heavenly father. And it appears that this is not just a momentary listening. Because if you notice, it says, when they kept on questioning them. And there's kind of a, an air of frustration. And finally, Jesus stands up and he says, uh, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, that's that response that I usually think about a half an hour later after the fight's over, you know, and I go, oh, why didn't I say that? And often we don't think of the right thing to say in the moment because we haven't listened. More on that in a minute. But Jesus says this, and when he does, I think he sets everyone free because the accusers now drop the stones and they walk away without having the murder of this woman on their conscience. And the woman is set free as well with no condemnation and she's launched to live a life of freedom. And so the question is, how do we learn how to fight the right battle? Because the Pharisees never got it right. You see, the Pharisees were so focused on the extrinsic that they always lost the battle for the heart. Now you say, well, always? Well, Jesus indicated it was always. He said in Matthew 23 to the Pharisees, look, even when you guys do succeed in making a convert, that person is twice the child of hell that they were before. You you know why? Because the gospel's never been about outward behavior modification. It's always been about heart transformation. And so Jesus knew that you got to win the battle for the heart, that it's not the anger of God, but it's the kindness of God that draws people to repentance, and it's when the kindness hits the heart, that's when transformation takes place. Now, I I said earlier that the church has a long history of fighting the wrong battles, Um, but I don't want to pick on us. I want to pick on the disciples. Let me give you three quick examples of the disciples blowing it and fighting the wrong battles, okay? Uh, Let's start with James and John, the sons of thunder. You remember those two guys? 
They're amazing. I, I love them. Uh, they're the one in honor of Mother's Day. Their mother came to Jesus and said, could my boy sit on your right and left, okay? She's a good mom. A little manipulative, but a good mom, okay? And, uh, but these two guys, uh, they were going through this village with Jesus in Samaria, and the village didn't respond to Jesus the way they thought he should have been received and responded to. And so they uh, say, Jesus, call down fire on this village. And I can just imagine Jesus slapping his forehead, saying, oy vey. Um, he, he was Jewish, okay. And he said, guys, that's the wrong battle. We are not called to call down fire. We are called here for mercy. You see, Jesus understood the right battle, and the disciples didn't get it. Another example, Peter in the garden, when Jesus is being betrayed, uh, pulls out a sword when the temple guard shows up. And rather than attack the temple guard, he cuts the ear off Malchus, the high priest servant boy. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, estimates the boy was 12. And Peter, the great and mighty warrior, fighting the right battle, supposedly, cuts an ear off a 12-year-old boy. And I can just see Jesus as he's putting the ear back on the kid's head, looking at Peter saying, put your sword away. That's not the right battle. I've got a different battle. You don't need the sword for it. Final example. You'd think after the resurrection that the disciples would finally get it. But when Jesus appears to them, after the resurrection, right before his ascension, their question is, are are we now going to rule and reign with you? Are you going to restore the kingdom? And they're thinking political, earthly kingdom. And again, I can just see Jesus shaking his head saying, guys, listen, don't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Because if you try to do this on your own, you are going to fight the wrong battle. And so wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you and he's going to turn you into my witnesses. In essence, he's going to lead you into the right battle. And so if it's something the disciples struggled with, I think we've got to admit it's probably something we struggle with too. So how do we learn to fight the right battle? Let me give you one more story and then we'll go back to the text. I want to talk to you for just a few minutes about a swearing golfer. Okay, any golfers here? Not too many golf. There are not too many golf courses in New York. I know that. But uh, uh, I love to golf. I'm not good at it, but I, I, I love to golf. And a few years ago, I went golfing with my pastor, which is always a challenge when you're golfing with your pastor. Um, and, and, uh, and it was another Bible professor from Nyack with us. And so there's three of us, and we're getting ready to tee off at this golf course. We're up in Rockland County. And uh, the starter came to us and said, hey, guys, I noticed there's three of you. Could I put a young man with you uh, to make a foursome instead of just a threesome? It makes play go a little quicker. So they, they introduced us to this young man. His name was uh, Mike. And uh, we started to golf. And as we were golfing, we quickly noticed two things about Mike. Uh, this young man, probably 21, 22 years of age, was one of the worst golfers that I'd ever played with. I mean, he made my game look good, you know. Uh, that's how bad he was. And, um, and the second thing we noticed is that he was the most prolific, gifted cursor and swearer I'd ever played with. He was stringing words together so creatively, I was taking notes on my scorecard. It was just quite interesting, you know. And, uh, and the way he was playing, he earned every curse word, okay. So he's cursing, swearing. Now, at first it was amusing. But after four or five holes, it was starting to ruin the day. And so I have heard Christians fight the battle for behavior in moments like this, where they say, excuse me, but you're taking the name of the Lord my God in vain. I wish you wouldn't do it. 
And I understand there might be a time for a healthy rebuke, but here's the problem with that approach. You almost never win a guy's heart that way. So I started to pray, Lord, what do I say to this young man? So about the fifth or sixth hole, I got an idea. He's on the tee. He's getting ready to tee off. And I said, hey, Mike, have you considered that you're praying the wrong prayer? And he looked back at me and he goes, what the bleepity bleep are you talking about? I don't bleepity bleep pray. You know, I don't even bleepity bleep believe in God, so why would I bleepity bleep pray? And I went, well, you're praying and it's working. He says, what am I praying? I said, every time you say, God damn it, he does. (laughs) The ball goes into the water, into the woods. He shakes his head and he goes, that's a prayer? I go, yep, and it's working. He says, well, look, I don't know anything about prayer. What should I pray? I said, why don't you try God bless it? He goes, would that work? I said, it can't hurt. You stink, you know. (laughs) He shook his head and he looked at his golf ball and he stood over it and he goes, God bless it? And it was more of a question, you know, than a prayer. And uh, I go, he looks back at me and I give him a thumbs up. And when when he turned to hit the ball, I start praying, oh, God, we need a miracle. I was binding the spirit of bad golf in Jesus' name. I was casting out bad golf demons, man. I was doing everything I knew to do, okay? And he swings and he hits the ball and it goes right straight down the middle of the fairway. Longest drive of the day, perfectly positioned for his second shot. And he turns and looks at me and he is shaking. (laughs) And he points his finger at me and he goes, you're in touch with the supernatural. And in my best John Wayne voice, I went, yes, I am. (laughs) Now, here's where the real miracle happened, folks. He goes, are you guys Christians? We went, yeah. Most days, you know. We wanted to low-key it. I didn't want him to know he was golfing with a seminary dean and a pastor. And, you know, it's a little too intimidating. Yeah, yeah. And he goes, well, listen, I got some Christian friends, and I have a lot of questions about God. And every time I try to ask them, they tell me what a dirty, rotten, horrible, no good sinner I am and how I'm on my way to hell. And I already know that. But would you guys mind if I asked you some questions about God? And over the next 10 holes, that young man opened up his heart to us and asked us question after question after question. You know, he never swore again. Uh, That wasn't the point. But the point was that we got to his heart. Oh, I wish I could tell you on the 18th green he sunk a birdie putt, fell on his face and received Jesus as his savior, but he didn't. But when we went to shake hands with him and say goodbye, he pushed our hands away and he hugged us. You don't hug in a golf course, okay? <laughs> Men don't do that. But he hugged us and he had tears in his eyes and he said, I want to thank you because I've learned more about God today than I have the rest of my life. You see, folks, successful evangelism isn't just getting someone to pray a prayer or sign a card. It's getting them one step closer to Jesus. And the only way we get them one step closer to Jesus is we've got to find the pathways to their heart and not be offended so quickly by their behavior or their external because God's after their heart and so must we. So let me give you three quick principles on fighting the right battle um, from Jesus in this passage. And this works for moms and dads as well. And so here's the first one. The first thing we see in this passage is if we're going to win the battle for the heart, we've got to learn to listen before we lecture. We've got to learn to listen before we lecture. You see, remember, 
that Jesus does not immediately jump into a sermon here. He waits, he listens, he discerns what's going on. And friends, I have to tell you some of the worst mistakes I've ever made with non-Christian friends and with my children has come because I lectured and preached before I listened adequately to their hearts. And I believe there's some people in your life right now that have heard your sermons, they've heard your lectures, and it's time to spend more time listening than lecturing to find the pathway to their heart. Let me give you an example of this. When my daughter Kelly was 18, she got a scholarship to another Christian college. Uh, she went off to college. It was exciting. Uh, we, were, we were glad to see her at this school, great school. But about midway through the year, in the middle of winter, I get a call from the dean of students. And by the way, I have Kelly's permission to tell you this story. And uh, Kelly uh, was at a party, it turns out, at a neighboring school. And there was alcohol at this party. And the school got word about it. And so they put my daughter on disciplinary probation. And the dean of students called to tell me. And I have to be honest. I was angry. I was embarrassed. Um, I, I was afraid that my daughter was going to lose her scholarship, which would cost me money. And that was probably a big concern. And... Uh, and so I called her up, and man, I let her have it. You know, what is wrong with you? I can't believe that you were at that party. You know better than that. You're going to lose your scholarship. You're going to cost me money. And I was not concerned with her emotional well-being at that point. I wasn't concerned with her development. I was just angry. You ever been angry? You ever lectured when you should have listened? After about 10 minutes, she said, Dad, will you please listen? And I said, no. And I gave her another five minutes, okay? <laughs> Finally, after quite a while, she said, Dad, please listen. And I said, all right, what do you have to say? She said, Dad, I was wrong. When I got to that party, I realized I shouldn't be there. Um, and as I was leaving, I noticed there was a girl from our school who was drunk. She had been abandoned by her friends because they were afraid if they stayed with her, they would get in trouble. And Dad, you taught me to never abandon my friends. And that girl was so sick, I had to call 911, and I rode to the hospital with her in the ambulance. And Dad, the school found out I was there because my name was in the medical report. And Dad, she was more important than me staying out of trouble. So I called the dean of students back. <laughs> Find out if I was getting the real story. And to my surprise, he said, yeah, that's actually the true story. And Kelly probably saved that girl's life that night. And my response was, why didn't you tell me this before? He said, oh, I didn't think it really mattered. And I went, oh, okay. Now, i got to tell you something. I, I told the dean of students, my daughter will serve the disciplinary probation. She did. She graduated four years later. But uh, I, I need you to know something. I said this to the dean of students. Yes, she was wrong. But at the same time, I've never been more proud of my daughter than I am right now. And while that sounds good, unfortunately, it was a little bit too late. Because... I hurt my daughter deeply in that phone call. And in fact, that night, I lost her heart for the next eight years. And it took us eight years to win her heart back by listening more than we lecture. And I'm happy to say now at the age of 30, we have her heart and Jesus has her heart. And she's doing really well. But those were eight years I'll never get back. And so friends, there are people in your lives right now that have heard your sermons and your lectures, but you've got to listen to their heart if you're going to fight the right battle. Second thing we see in this passage is we've got to allow people to belong before they believe or behave the right ways. Now this is not only a lesson for parents, but it's a lesson for Trinity Baptists. 
And that's this truth, that Jesus has this unbelievable ability to embrace people that don't believe the right things and don't behave the right ways. And he has this amazing capacity to embrace people and love people and show them the unconditional love of God. And in the process of doing that, he always wins their heart. And that's something the church has got to learn. Because we tend to hold people at a distance until they believe the right things or behave the right ways. And I think there's a new reformation coming to the church. It's a reformation of grace. I pray there's also a reformation coming to the way we do parenting, that it becomes grace-based parenting and not legalistic, manipulative, extrinsic parenting. And I think if we do that, we're going to win some hearts, a lot of hearts. Let me give you a quick example. When Wanda and I were pastoring in California, it was a Monday night and we had a Bible study group that was meeting at our house. And I got a phone call and, uh, and the voice on the other end said, hello, is this Pastor Ron? And I said, yeah, this is Pastor Ron. And the voice said, my name is Karen. And I said, my, I almost said, my Karen, what a deep voice you have. But I had a little more pastoral sensitivity than that. And I said, how can I help you? And Karen proceeded to tell me that she was a transgender person and wanted to know if she could come to our Bible study. And so to make a long story short, I went and I picked up Karen. And I was terrified. I had never spent any time with a transgender person, and I didn't know how my people would respond. And when we got back to the house, I watched as the people from our church embraced Karen, not as a transgender person, but as a person that Jesus loves. And over the next eight weeks, we found out Karen's story, that it wasn't a sexuality issue as much as it was a fear issue, because uh, Karen had been born Michael and had been abused by every man in his life and had started to dress as a female to avoid the abuse of men. So imagine the courage it took Karen to call a male pastor and ask if she could come to our Bible study. At the end of eight weeks, Karen came to faith in Jesus Christ. And then we found out more of her story. We found out that she had been in the sex change operation program at UC Davis, had been being wheeled down the hall for the final surgery when Karen heard the Lord speak and say, Karen, I am the Lord your God. This is not my will for your life. Do not do this. She stopped them and went to every church she could find in Sacramento and got thrown out of every single one. Went back into the program and was being wheeled down the hall to again have the surgery. Again, heard God speak, Karen, I am the Lord your God. This is not my will for you. She said to us, I couldn't understand why if the church was so against me, why did God call me by my female name? And then I realized this truth. God always speaks to us where we're at, not where we should be. And I would have never heard him had he called me by any other name. Friends, I want you to tell you, to tell you something. This isn't a statement about being politically correct. This is a statement about real heart transformation that has to come from an intrinsic work of the Holy Spirit. About six months later, after a lot of prayer and ministry and love, Karen came to Wanda and said, my wife said, I would like to be known as Michael, and I would like you to take me shopping for men's clothing. And Wanda said, well, okay, but it would be inappropriate for a married woman to go shopping with a single man. And Michael said, oh, you're intimidated by my masculinity. That's so exciting. It's never happened to me before. So Wanda and another woman in our Bible study group took Michael shopping, bought him men's clothing, he got a haircut. Because he wanted to, he was free. 
took a long time, about six months, and came to our Bible study group the next week, and the only thing that he had was a leather coach bag that he still had. He was dressed as a man, and I said, Michael, you look good, but you really need to lose the purse. And he goes, but you men have no place to keep your Bible and your notebook and your markers and everything. And I said, well, you'll figure something out. And so he went back to the secondhand store downtown and found a hunting vest. And the next week he showed up at Bible study and he had his markers in the shotgun shell holders and his Bible and notebook in the game pocket. And he walked up to me and he goes, manly enough for you now? I said, yes, Michael, you're awesome. Uh, Michael, by the way, is now leading evangelistic Bible studies in San Francisco among the transgender community there and has an incredible ministry. Why? Because a group of Christians, and I'm actually not even numbering myself among them because I think my people did a better job than I did. They embraced somebody with the unconditional love of God before he believed the right things and before he behaved the right way. They went after his heart and a life got transformed. Well, the final principle I see in this passage is we've got to learn to exercise more compassion than control. And this one's a tough, for, a tough one for parents because what happens is when our kids are teenagers, we don't want them to make the same mistakes we made. And so we do everything in our power, including manipulation, including control, to try to keep them from doing the wrong thing. But in the process, we end up driving them away instead of drawing them close. You see, Jesus' ministry is always about compassion. And if you look at how many people get transformed through that compared to the manipulation and control of the Pharisees, there's no comparison. So we've got to learn to exercise compassion more than control. Hear this. Prodigals will never return to control. They will only return to compassion. And we've got to learn this lesson. Now, I was raised by a dad who was a pastor. And for most of my life growing up, my dad... Uh, kind of represented the wrath of God to me. I was scared to death of him. And in my teen years, even though I was a Christian, even though I knew I had a call in my life, I started to run from God pretty hard. And, and if you had seen me in my teen years, you'd have said, there's no way that kid's a believer. But I knew I belonged to Jesus, but I just was running pretty hard. I was drinking, I was doing a lot of drugs, and uh, my external was a mess. And so was my heart. But I knew I belonged to the Lord. And one night I was about 16 and I came home drunk. And I was trying to get the key in the door and get in without my parents waking up. And sure enough, the door swung open. And it was the incarnation of the wrath of God, my dad, standing there. And I'm looking at him in terror. And I try to get around him. And as I tried to get around him, I slip and I fall. And I fall flat in my face. And all of a sudden, I feel these hands pick me up. And to be honest, I was waiting for the sermon. I was waiting for the lecture. I'd heard them all before. I was ready. I had a defense for that. But instead, he grabbed me and he hugged me. And he whispered these words in my ear. He said, Ron, I love you. And I will always love you. And nothing you will ever do will stop me from loving you. And then without saying another word, he helped me into bed. And he walked out of my bedroom. And I laid in that bed that night. And I began to weep. Because it was in that moment I knew I had to return to the compassionate God of a loving father like that. Now, hear me. My behavior didn't change for about six months. But that was the night my dad won my heart. That, that really was significant. Because his compassion, his love, I had no defense for. And it is the kindness and the mercy of God that leads to repentance. And that 
is the pathway God used to win my heart. And so we've got to learn to exercise more compassion and control. Let me share one last story with you. And there's a picture. Go ahead and put the picture up of the sheep in wolf's clothing. That's kind of a cute picture, isn't it? Now, let me tell you the story behind this picture. When my kids, all four of them at one time, were running from God pretty hard. And uh, it was when they were all four teenagers. And so I was praying one night for my kids, and especially my oldest daughter, Kelly. And as I was praying for my kids, I had a vision. And in this vision, I saw thousands of sheep scattered across this hillside. And as I looked at these sheep, I noticed that they had wolf skins on. And I'm looking as I'm praying, and and I don't get a lot of visions, but when I get them, I know that God's trying to get something through to me. And I said, Lord, what is that? And uh, he said, those are my sons and daughters that have walked away from the church. And right now, they don't look like mine. But make no mistake about it, they belong to me. They are my sheep. They are my sons. They are my daughters. Here they are, covered in wolf skins. And and I'm looking at that, and, and all of a sudden the Lord says, and there's coming a move of my spirit when they will cast off the facade of who they've been pretending to be, and they will be raised up as the sons and daughters, the sheep of God. And now I started to get excited. I'm like, yes, Lord, bring them home, bring them home, bring them home. And he said, no, 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 don't pray for them to come back to the church pray that they would be raised up as the church wherever they are because I have positioned them strategically in art, in entertainment, in sports, in business. And when they cast off that wolf skin and when they are raised up as the sons and daughters of God, thousands will hear the gospel that will never hear through the church. And I, it changed the way I prayed for my kids. Instead of praying with judgment and condemnation and anger and self-righteousness, I began to say, oh, Father, Show them who they really are. Father, let they find themselves back to the heart of the Father. And Lord, would you find your way to their heart and win their heart? And I've seen that happen with my own kids. And we're starting to see that happen with the sheep in wolf's clothing all across the spectrum of our culture. And so it's time to win the hearts of a new generation. So here's what I want to do. I want to pray for you. And I want us to pray for people whose hearts need to be won in your life. It may be some sons and daughters. It may be friends and loved ones. But we're going to pray for them in just a minute. But before we pray for them, we have to pray for us. So will you stand with me?